Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. Now you... The Media Project, a half hour of commentary and analysis of the media issues of the week, and we are very happy to have you join us this week as we continue our shows from deep within the basements, attics, and front porches of our homes around the community. I'm Rex Smith, editor-at-large of the Times Union, here with Dr. Alan Shartok. How are you, Professor? I'm all right, you know. All right, you know. Well, all right these days is better than not. Barbara Lombardo is here, longtime editor of the Saratogian, executive editor of the Troy Record, and now teaching at UAlbany. Barbara, what's up with you? I am very glad to be here for this program. Well, okay, that's good. And Judy Patrick, vice president of the New York Press Association, who is editor of the Daily Gazette in Schenectady. Are you there in the wilds of Washington County? I am up in the wilds of Washington County. The good news is no black flies yet, and the ticks aren't biting, so I'm happy as a clam up here. (laughs) The ticks aren't biting? You mean it's too chilly? They're not with us yet? I don't know. I think it's too chilly. We'll see what happens to me today. I'll report back. Okay. Yeah, we'll report back. Next time uh, you're on the show, we'll have a tick report. Very good idea. So, you know, obviously, we will be talking a lot on this program about the elements of the coronavirus and the impact on the media. One thing that's a little bit, oh, it's counterintuitive to say, well, there's good news here, folks, because there's so much that is such tragic news. But in our world, the media world has changed a bit. And one element of it is that there is a lot more media consumption. Some numbers were out this past week showing big increases in television viewership. Radio has lost some just because there's no drive time. You know, people like to listen to the radio in the car, and so there's been a bit of a decline there. But television is up considerably. Except, Rex, in terms of our radio station, is that it is true that people aren't in their cars, and there may be a little bit of a diminution of numbers of people who are listening. However, The great thing for our station and the ones that many people are listening to right now is that people are listening much longer. You know, during our fund drive, which are a rather successful fund drive, which we just had, people were calling in saying they don't turn it off at all during the day. So there is that compensation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's significant. You know, that is a big deal. If you can keep people engaged longer, I mean, that's one of the key metrics that we're all looking for, engagement. It's not digital clicks. That's not what the journalism world is looking for these days. Uh, 10, 12, 15 years ago, when we were first trying to make this transition to digital, we were talking about page views. But now we're really looking for that engagement. So if you can keep people listening longer, that's really a, a very good thing. And apparently the PBS NewsHour, their viewership has really skyrocketed, which tells us a little bit about what's happening out there. In fact, they offer within one hour, they will give you the news of the day and they'll give you a variety of news. 
surveys also saying that there's increased viewership of public TV by young people. You know, the 18 to 49 demographic, it's up 44% for men and 33% for women. So younger people, thank God, are starting to pay attention to the news. This is a great thing. Yes, the numbers here, the early fringe, that is 5 p.m. to 8 p.m. in whichever time zone, Monday through Friday, public TV viewing is up 26%. Total viewing is up 10%. So that is that news hour effect, people looking for that rather sober, straightforward approach to coverage that they don't get from cable news, right? And one wonders, don't we? I mean, the demographics about who watches public TV is sort of interesting to me. I think without seeing anything in print, that people who generally are more intellectual are likely to watch public TV and maybe even a little better healed than otherwise. Mm -hmm. And so one wonders why those folks, if I'm right about that, are watching in greater numbers. I myself love public TV because they almost always play stuff over and over again that I love, you know, either Pete Seeger or Arlo Guthrie or something of that kind. And then, of course, once a week I get to watch the Lawrence Welk show on public TV, our public TV <laughs> station. I think that's just great, you know, see those people dancing around and having a good time. Well, and then the increase probably harkens back to what Rex said in the beginning is that people are not driving to work. So oh, they yeah. are, right. you want to know what's going on with the with the virus. You want to know what the news is, but you're not going to be in your car. You're not going to be tuning into the radio. So you're going to be listening to the PBS News Hour or other reliable sources through the television. It used to be called educational TV, and now with mm. all these kids home from school, you're seeing increased viewership of educational programming that they put out their American Experience programs, all the great educational programs that they offer, the kids are watching them because, you know, it is good content for them. Absolutely. I think that we're probably going to see more reliance on television delivery of content. Though now, unlike when I was a kid growing up in South Dakota, I used to get my fifth and sixth grade French classes on broadcast television. There were so few people watching mid-morning on the channels that carried CBS in my community that they gave it over to the school system. Well, probably it wasn't a give over. But the fact is, children were being taught by television back in the 60s. And that actually, I think we're going to see a lot more of. And it may be a way that we can get some additional value for the tax-exempt status that we grant to public broadcasters. A good idea. <laughs> Now, Alan, what's the... <laughs> why am I? No, I'm I'm very interested in what you all think. You know, uh, there used to be something called Sunrise Semester. Do you all remember that, or is that way oh, yeah, before yeah. your time? And you would learn college coursework and stuff. You know, my feeling is that a good deal of people's learning curve is related to what we and our stations do. We have a program called the Academic Minute, and uh, mm -hmm. various college professors, it's the only thing of its kind in the country, by the way, are talking about their research and what they've found. As we speak, a very interesting program in which men have more fun playing with their children than women do. That was really? Research. Yeah. Did I believe it? No. But uh, <laughs> it's interesting stuff, and I think that... Yes, I think because the intellectual content of both public TV and radio is so much higher than other places, people can't help but learn from it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's a lot of opportunities for people to learn off TV. I've actually used that academic minute program for my journalism class at UAlbany, where we're 
the advantage of being able to replay something that's already been aired, and they're listening to it, and they're taking notes as if they're covering it. And then we talk about how do you cover a, a report, and how do you write it in an interesting way? How do you translate it into layman's terms? So there's a lot of learning opportunities that can be taken from television, watching a press conference, and then dissecting the coverage of it. You know, as we're here talking about these opportunities, frankly, that are presented by a coronavirus, we do have to bear in mind there is always a difficult issue that we come up against in this program, and that is how to sustain the journalism ecosystem. And there is now some talk about, increasing talk, in fact, about government loans being made available to newsrooms, to local news organizations. This is in the House version of the stimulus bill that just passed that the Senate is vowing not to take up, but there is Senate sponsorship for this as well. And of course, it goes to this old dilemma of whether news organizations whose job is to hold the government accountable can take money from the government without triggering a conflict of interest. Well, I should I'm... make clear that small news organizations, those with less than 500 employees, have been eligible for the first round, and a number of them have received this money already. What the current bill does is allow Newspapers that are part of bigger chains, which would, as a corporate matter, have more than 500 people, that would allow them to access this PPE, these loans that eventually become grant money. So I think there have been news organizations already that have gotten this, although not all of them, because as you know, a lot of small businesses were frozen out in the first round of this PPE money. Frozen out both by the intense demand and by this requirement that you have to have fewer than 500 employees, whereas a lot of newspapers around the country, let's say, uh, most of the dailies in the U.S. are owned by big companies, but they are individually managed and losing a lot of money. So on we go into figuring out, well, how do you sustain that ecosystem? You know, we can say, well, digital is the future, and uh, let's just wait for the digital networks to prop up some local news reporting. But here we are 25 years into the digital revolution, aren't we that long? And we have not yet seen the healthy growth of standalone local news organizations digitally that can survive. There just isn't enough revenue to support them in these communities. And, you know, just since this uh, coronavirus crisis has begun, more than 35,000 media workers have taken pay cuts or been furloughed or lost their jobs. So there may not be a media ecosystem to continue this if there's not some aid, yet there's this ethical dilemma, Right. I have mixed feelings about things like the hedge fund that owns the Saratogian and the Troy Record and many larger newspapers around the country has no secret that Alton Global Capital has milked these properties practically to death. And it's not as if they couldn't invest some more money in there. I don't know that they've applied for loans or taking loans, but here's examples of hardworking small staffs trying to bring local news to their communities, whether it's digitally and or in print. And should they be getting money from loans from the government? Do they really need it? I'd like to register for a comment, if I may. The president of the United States has called the press the enemy of the people, right? Now, can you imagine, I have no problem with the way that this is being done now, because 
you know, there's, there's a lot of separation between the politicians and the news people taking the money. But you better believe that if you give a politician on an ongoing basis the ability to either give or not give money, you better believe they're going to want something back for it. No question in my mind about that, and I've always thought that. But you've withstood that, Alan. You've been taking money from the public for years. Public broadcasting, I don't think, has been cowed by government. Right? And they were very smart about the way they did that, Rex, in the beginning. There is a two-year advance on the money. In other words, you get the money, but two years in advance, and so therefore nobody can do anything at a particular moment. Now, I think we have not been cowed. You're right about that at WAMC. But part of that is that I think it's about 5% of the money we get comes from the feds. The rest and the state. The rest of it, we get from our listeners. And were we to have to succeed without being dependent on the federal money, I think we could definitely do that. I don't think every public radio station could, but we certainly could. Mm-hmm. Well, what about, what about this? There's a move afoot to encourage the federal government to spend more of its advertising dollars. It spends about a billion dollars a year to advertise things like filling out your census or recruiting for the military, but they mostly spend that on major broadcast networks. There is a move afoot to have them spend more money in local news stations, local newspapers, and in fact, I would argue that would be far more effective than a very expensive network ad. Would you think that would compromise us? That sounds like a great idea. I think getting some ads in local newspapers to say your neighbors are going to be coming around to take the census, please respond to them. You know, we use federal dollars to subsidize certain social ends all the time, one way or another. Uh, We use tax policy to uh, create social goals. And so I, I think that sounds like a good idea. I think it would work also, and the only caveat for the news companies would be not to start to depend on that in an ongoing basis for their revenue. Not that it would be that much, but it would be something, and it would be a good Mm -hmm. way to reach local people. Well, as we all know, Rex will talk to this about the so-called legals that appear in newspapers, and it's a pretty good example because at the point at which the Times Union, his newspaper, started giving trouble to the mayor of Albany, which they have done for a long, long time, the mayor took all their legal advertising out. And that was a substantial amount of money, wasn't it, Rex? It was a big deal. This was back in the 60s when Rastis Corning was mayor and the legal ads for some of the Albany County and City of Albany projects, the notices of bids and that kind of thing, were put into the Evangelist, the newspaper run by the Catholic Diocese. And this was because the political structure was unhappy with the Times Union's coverage. So right now, the current debate over legal advertising involves the state. Governor Cuomo, using his executive powers, that is in the coronavirus time, has eliminated public bidding on certain state projects. Well, if you don't have bidding, if the state can award big contracts without bids, you don't have legal advertising of the bids to reach the businesses. And so that's another hit. And there are more assaults that are coming from the Cuomo administration on legal advertising. This is costing New York State newspapers literally millions of dollars. And I'm afraid that for some smaller newspapers, it could push them over the edge. Judy, are you seeing any of that in the New York Press Association papers? Well, one of the other things you're seeing is because of everything's kind of on hold. You don't know when we're voting for school board elections. All those legal notices were 
on hold or they were uncertain. There was a, a sense that that was going to break open once the dates for all the school board elections, the primary elections, the tax assessment filing, legal notices, those would start to come in and you would see some break. But the other point here is it's more than just the newspapers losing money. It's the public losing access to what their government's doing, which is, you know, a huge loss. Yes, those legal notices are in some cases the only way that people know about a project coming down the pike, right? Yes, exactly. I I just wanted to correct you on a major point. By omission, you said the evangelist got the advertising from the city of Albany. That's true. But you know who else got it? The Jewish world. (laughs) The newspaper, the Jewish world. So they they were very nice. They gave it to the evangelist and to the Jewish world. Uh, (laughs) It was long before I got here, but it's a great story. And, of course, the Times Union eventually responded when the city further tightened the screws and said, we're not going to give you a variance on a little piece of property so they could expand their building uh, down in Sheridan Hollow of Albany downtown. The Times Union responded by moving outside the city of Albany, moving to Colony, which building opened up in 1969, where we are now. So this is all part of the great history of the struggle between press and government, and it continues. You know, we do have to be cognizant. We had an interesting letter from a listener, Elliot, who takes us to task for talking too much about the decline of the local newspaper industry. And, you know, I think it's a valid point, although my point would be that this is the core of the local news ecosystem. If you lose newspapers out across the state of New York or across Pennsylvania or anywhere else, you don't have a replacement. Our listener, Elliot, likes something called, he's in addition, there is high quality journalism like the dispatch that started with a firewall. He means a paywall. But this actually makes the point. The dispatch is a national opinion piece. It's a website that primarily focuses on conservative opinions. But it is the local news, the investigative or the watchdog reporting on your city hall or your county government that we're going to lose if we can't keep these local news organizations afloat. I agree with you, Rex, and I I wanted to say something, and it's time for an Allen apology. Apparently, I said the other day that a wonderful newspaper that exists in Columbia County, the Columbia paper, had bit the dust. The print edition did, but they're still online, and I want to make that very clear. Ah, I'm glad to hear that. Don't you see? Yeah. You know, journalists, we make mistakes, and the trick is to own up to them as quickly as we can. That's a good thing. We correct our errors. The president tends not to. Sorry. (laughs) I recognize that may have sounded like opinion, but it is, in fact, just true. So, as a matter of fact, there was an error made by Chuck Todd on NBC in some discussion involving the attorney general, and he corrected it on the air. I mean, he corrected it immediately on the air. This is important to note that when there are errors, we do that. And when the president claims that we are fake news and we're not telling the truth, you know, he doesn't cite what the mistakes are because they are not mistakes. They are things that he finds to be inconvenient, but they're truth. So the record of owning up to your mistakes is exactly what's important to do. I think in the Chuck Todd case, To me, it was a case of gotcha journalism, where Mm -hmm. you get excited if you think you got somebody and you caught them red-handed. And what Meet the Press did on Sunday was run not a full enough snippet of a clip. And it wasn't that it was edited by their staff for that show. They used something that CBS had already edited down. So they never went to the next step of saying, well, maybe we should listen to this whole piece to see if indeed Barr did say or did not say what we're accusing him of, if they had 
done that extra step, which you think would be important basic journalism, then we wouldn't have been into the position of having to apologize in the first place. So he did it on Sunday. He apologized on Tuesday, which was the next time that he was on the air. I don't know what more that you could do about that. But when we make those kind of missteps in journalism, it gives the president and his ilk fodder to criticize us. So we have to be so careful. You know, the the press conference one day this week with the president turned into just a sideshow where they had the microphone position. So the reporters actually had to go up to the microphone and essentially bow to ask their question to the president. I was just so exasperated by the bullying treatment of the press. And at this point, my position is, where are the editors? Where are the news directors? They need to stand up for those reporters who are being bullied and harassed by the president at these press briefings. I just think it needs to stop. And the what media are you suggesting that the editors and news directors do? I think they should make calls. I think all of us have been in positions where you know that your, your reporter is being harassed in the field. And I would call the mayor. I would call the supervisor. I would call the school superintendent and say, you can't mm-hmm. do this to our reporter because it's essentially you're responsible for that reporter. And while reporters have a lot of clout, the people that really have the clout are the editors and the news directors. Well, in this case, it's calling the president. Yeah, or even his his press secretary. Somebody's Uh, got to stand up for them. I think you're right. And I wonder if it would make any difference, though. This is... uh, We don't even uh, know if it's happening or not. It could be happening. That's true. The example also from the recent White House press conference where a Chinese-born CBS News reporter, her family came to the United States when she was two years old, asked a question, and the president snapped at her, don't ask me, ask China the question, okay? And she responded by saying, sir, why are you saying that to me specifically? She was obviously quite taken by this. It just seemed like it was, ooh, it seemed a bit racist to me, just looking at it. It certainly was racist, Yeah, no question about it. And it was disgusting. And she called him on it, and she got him, which was good. And then he ends up abruptly calling off the press conference. It made me wonder of whether the press needs to handle him differently, and I don't know how. Look how he can just decide he calls on you. No, he's not calling on you. No, he's calling off the press conference at that moment unexpectedly. Well, well, there's actually a deeper story here, and that is that we know from leaks and other things that he has been advised not to have these briefings and these press conferences. He never had them before. Then he started to have him. The vice president looked like he was gaining traction, and so all of a sudden the president shows up. Well, now there's this whole other question, which is, is it good for him? So there's people are telling him, don't do it. He gets into trouble with this reporter who was born in China, and he he abruptly starts to think, I believe, that the people who were advising him not to be out there were right, and he walks off. And my advice to the reporters asking the questions are, don't ask two questions, because if you ask two questions, they're going to to answer the question that they want to answer, and they'll never answer the other question. Just ask one question and hold them to that one question. Don't ask the question like, what are your thoughts about so-and-so? Ask a specific question and just ask one. So what should the media do about this alternate universe that's being constructed by the president and uh, the right-wing media groups distracting people? I would say, from bad, bad news about coronavirus by going to the notion, putting forth the idea that President Obama and others improperly used the levers of government to conspire against Trump. They hope to beat him in 2016, and the deep state has, has been working against him. This is, they're calling it Obamagate, and you hear this on the, on the Fox News commentators. How do you deal with that? I mean, in, in all of this, attacking China 
fits into that. We know that Trump is going to, by reporting, we know that Trump is going to attack Joe Biden for being weak on China. What, if, what do you do if you're a reporter? I am terrified that we are going down the 2016 rabbit hole again, where we are reporting and the talking heads on television keep repeating and the press keeps writing about the crazy, unsubstantiated, unclear, unfair garbage that's coming out of the president and his administration and and his campaign. And we keep talking about it. So for me, the answer is, okay, you got to say that he said it. And then you can't keep talking about it. What does he mean by that? What is Obamagate? What do you think? Do you think it's going to hurt people? Do you think it's don't give it airtime beyond the very basic of saying it's baloney? And don't worry about having to say critics say there's nothing to it. Just say there's nothing to it. We have to not be apologetic in our reporting. It's not opinion to say there's nothing to substantiate what he's talking about, as opposed to critics say the uh, president doesn't know what he's talking about. He's making this up. I have seen some good coverage in mainstream media, Reuters and the New York Times and more, where they're saying, you know, he's talking about this Obamagate that it doesn't mean anything. But don't keep talking about it. That good advice for the media becomes the end of our program. We've run out of time, I'm afraid. Oh, Oh, sorry about the filibuster. No, it's all right. We end on some really thoughtful uh, conversation from Barbara Lombardo. Thanks, Barbara. Judy Patrick, we thank you, Dr. Alan Shartok. And we are grateful to our producer, David Gustina, for making us sound better than we ordinarily would. I'm Rex Smith from the Times Union. Thanks for joining us on The Media Project. They joined with other actors upon a living stage. Now newspapermen are such interesting people. When they know they've got a people's fight to wage, tingling-ling newspaper guild, got a free new world to build, meet the people, that's a thrill, all together fits the bill. Oh, newspaper men are such interesting people, it's wonderful to represent the flow. Now, you remember Mrs. Sadie Smuggery, she wanted money to buy a new fur coat. The Media Project is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Alan Shartok is CEO of WAMC, Professor Emeritus at the State University of New York, commentator, columnist, and author. Rex Smith is editor of the Times Union. Barbara Lombardo is a journalism professor at the University at Albany and former executive editor of the Saratogian and the Troy Record. And Judy Patrick is the vice president for editorial development for the New York Press Association. You can listen to or podcast The Media Project anytime at wamc.org or just download the WAMC app for your iPhone or Android at the Play Store today. Thanks for listening. Now newspaper men are such interesting people. They used to work like hell just for romance. But finally the movies notwithstanding, they all got tired of patches on their pants. They organized a union to get a living wage. They joined with other actors upon a living stage. Now newspaper men are such interesting people. When they know they've got a people's fight to wage. Ting-ling-ling newspaper guild. Got a free new world to build. Meet the people, that's a thrill. All together fits the bill. Oh, newspaper men are such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the flow. Publishers of such interesting people Their policy is an acrobatic thing They claim to represent the common people It's funny Wall Street never has complained 
Ah, but publishers have worries, for publishers must go to working folks for readers and to big shots for their dough. Now publishers are such interesting people. It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press.